Let us pray. Dear Father, as we prepare to hear your word, may you still our minds and quiet our spirits, that we might be open and that our ears might hear and our minds grasp the message in your words. Help us, Father, to take them in and ponder them and listen to them. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. Susan, thanks so much for reading and leading us this morning. Well, this, uh, this month, starting today and for the next four Sundays, the four Sundays in May, we are considering once again the kingdom of God. So over the past maybe six months and then probably through the next six months to a year, every so often we're going to periodically stop and consider different aspects of God's kingdom. And what we see in the scriptures is that God's kingdom is, is radically countercultural. It is radically different from the world around us. Just as a refresher, in case you've forgotten, I had nearly forgotten, so it's okay if you have as well. Uh, In the fall, we considered God's abundant kingdom, and we considered how Scripture teaches God's kingdom is one of fullness and abundance, and how that opposes and contrasts with the world's expectations that we live lives based on a principle of scarcity. In the winter, we spent time thinking about God's beautiful kingdom, and we saw how radically different it is to live a, a kingdom life that pursues beauty, the beauty of God, in a world that values utility and usefulness and productivity over beauty. And we saw that God values beauty over utility. This month, we're going to slow down, so to speak, and we're going to consider what, what you might call God's unhurried kingdom. Throughout the Bible, we see that God's kingdom is a kingdom That unlike our fast-paced and hectic and constantly accelerating world, intentionally slows us down. This is, is, the more I've been thinking about this, the more I see it, it was brought into stark contrast twice in the past month. So twice in the past month, I've been a part of a funeral procession. So, you know, after the funeral, you get in your cars and you all drive together, turn turn on your hazards and follow the hearse to the cemetery. And both times... As I've been part of this funeral procession, another car, not part of the funeral procession, has either cut into or cut off or somehow disrupted the funeral procession. 
Now, I don't know if this is because maybe I'm just a little more old-fashioned. I was always taught, like, when you see a funeral procession, you actually pull over and stop. (laughs) Hardly anybody stopped. And now people were actively disrupting this procession. And I assume it's because they were in a rush. And they were in a hurry to get where they were going. And maybe they were running late. I don't know. But for whatever reason, they couldn't wait, like, three minutes for a row of cars to go by as they were paying their last respects to somebody who passed away. We live in an incredibly fast-paced world, don't we? God, on the other hand, invites us to live a radically unhurried life, a life that rejects the lie that your worth is measured by how busy you are. A professor at Yale University, Ryan McAnally Lentz, teaches a course at Yale, and the course is called The Good Life, which is a really interesting sounding course. I'd love to take it. And it's kind of a philosophical, theological course. And the whole course is for a whole semester, he invites Yale students to consider what does it mean to live a life worth living? And one thing he's observed over the years as he teaches this course is that almost every single Yale student assumes and makes explicit that the life worth living must necessarily involve being busy. The way they put it is negative. They say, you cannot live a good life without being busy. And they wouldn't say that the busyness itself is what makes life worth living, but they would say that busyness is required. There's so much that's required to live a full life that there's no way to do it without being busy. Jesus invites us to a very different way of life. If, you read, if and when you read the Bible, when you read the Gospels, when you read the accounts of Jesus in the Scripture, Think with me for a minute. When was Jesus ever in a hurry? You won't find a place where Jesus was ever in a hurry. In fact, New Testament scholars like to point out how unhurried Jesus was, that that his whole ministry, the three years of adult ministry that he served, seem almost haphazard and random. They're so slow. God's kingdom, we see, is a counterintuitively unhurried kingdom, and he invites us into that, which, which to some extent we buy and to some extent we don't. I know we buy it to some extent because we pray. If, if you come here, we pray every single Sunday the Lord's Prayer, and we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to live, God, on earth as it is in heaven. So what do you think heaven's going to be like? Are we all going to be rushing around frantic in heaven? Is that what it's going to be like? And if not, and if the Christian life is to some extent living a heaven-on-earth life, then why do we buy into the frantic, hurried, always-busy, never-stopping, never-resting life? And what if God has something better in mind for us? For the next four weeks, we're going to explore an unhurried kingdom. And there's no way we can explore everything there is. But for the next two weeks, we're going to think just about Sabbath. Just about Sabbath. And that's going to leave us wanting. And so we're actually going to pick up, and in the fall, either September or October, we're going to spend another month thinking just about Sabbath. That means, of course, that I won't be able to answer every question you have today. I'm actually going to ask some questions and then leave them hanging and not answer them. So for those of you who are really type A and like your boxes checked and done, this is going to be a frustrating sermon for you. And sorry, not really. 
But if you have questions, and as you have questions, please reach out and just ask. And maybe we'll have answers and maybe we won't. But even your questions will be helpful even in shaping how the sermon series develops and progresses, progresses. Because all of this matters probably more than we realize. It matters because an intentional practice of Sabbath will set us apart and make us look honestly pretty odd to the world around us. To, the, to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers who don't follow Jesus, this will make us look weird. Let's be upfront. But the weirdness is part of the allure. This is kind of how God works. That as busy as we all are, and as much as we think we have to be busy in order to justify ourselves, at some level, we all long for rest. We long for rest. We just don't feel the permission to rest. So imagine learning to live a lifestyle of rest, which is not to say that you never work. It's to say that you work and you work very hard. And yet you carve out time, a day a week, for intentional, refreshing rest. How do you think your friends and coworkers and neighbors would respond? Probably twofold. One, that's weird. And two, how do I do that too? We're thinking about Sabbath. Sabbath comes from a Hebrew word, Shabbat. It literally just means to stop or to rest. And the first place we see Sabbath in the Bible is on page two. It's very, very early. When God creates everything on page one of the Bible, God creates everything there is to create, everything in nature that we see, and it was good. And on day two, on page two, it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, and so on the seventh day, he rested or he stopped. It begs the question, did God need to rest? Was he just so tired and so worn out and so exhausted from all of his creation and his work that he, oh, I got to put my feet up? Not exactly, no. It's, it's more like this. Have you, ever, um, have you ever worked on a pro- any project? Think of the last project you worked on. Maybe it was something artistic. Maybe, you were, maybe it was some yard work that you were working. It's this yard work season. You were doing yard work. Maybe you were just organizing a closet. And you finish the work. And you stop. And you step back. And you look at your finished work. And you think, oh, that's good. My yard looks good. It didn't used to look good. And now it's good. My closet used to be a hot mess, and now everything is where it belongs. I think that's more the sense of God's resting, his stopping. It's stopping, it's a sense of completion in creation, and God stopping and stepping back and looking and saying, oh, that's good. Let's just enjoy the finished nature of my work. God rested on the seventh day, And St. Augustine, one of the most famous theologians in history, he was from North Africa and about 1,500 years ago, points out that the first six days, the scripture says they ended. Day one happened, and the the way the Hebrew goes, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then day two, God did so-and-so, and then there was evening and morning the second day, and so on through day six. Then we get to the seventh day, and God rested, and the scriptures never tell us that the seventh day ends. It's as if to say that God intends for us to live into a life of rest. Now that's been perverted and that's been 
ruined, not totally, not inalterably ruined, but it's been affected by sin. That's page three of our Bible. And yet, Scripture promises us that Jesus will one day come back and transform our work back into Sabbath work, in a sense. That our work will once again be joyful and life-giving and refreshing and not toil. And so we look forward to that. It's not realized just yet, but God gives us the Sabbath one day a week, almost like an appetizer for what is to come a foretaste of what is to come. God in his mercy gives us the Sabbath through the Ten Commandments. If you remember, remembering the Sabbath day, that's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. It starts very simply, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And isn't it interesting, like most of the other Ten Commandments we don't really have a problem with. We would all say, those are good, those are important. And we don't, really, we don't even make a whole lot of excuses. Sometimes we do, but we don't make a whole lot of excuses for the others. We just follow them. But the Sabbath, we have no problem breaking. It's just not realistic nowadays. It can't happen. There's too much to do. It's not practical. Which is kind of the point. Consider this. That God gives us the Ten Commandments for our good. They're not meant to be restrictive or a straitjacket. They're meant to be liberating And they set the parameters for individuals and societies to flourish. So a society flourishes when people are honest and don't lie. Remember, that's one of the others. You don't lie. Society flourishes when people keep their own things and don't take other people's things. That's stealing. And we understand that. Society flourishes when we're faithful to our spouses and we don't We don't get involved with other people who are not our spouse. That's adultery. We understand the Ten Commandments and we we mostly get like why these matter and we take them seriously. But then we get to Sabbath. We think, ah, it's just not realistic. It just, just, ah, I don't know. To which I would respond in two ways. First, we have to make sure that we're observing Sabbath and thinking about Sabbath in the ways that God intended for us to. We're going to talk more about that later today and then especially next week. But secondly, I would ask simply, have you tried? Most people that I've talked to who say that this just isn't practical, this is just not workable in our modern society, haven't actually tried. (laughs) They just assume that it can't work. Now again, we're going to talk more about the practical side next week, and I know I'm going to leave questions on the table. This morning, we're reflecting more on the intent of Sabbath. The intent of Sabbath. And the intent is that God gives us, he wants to give us a weekly rest. A weekly chance to rest as though all our work is finished. Even though it's not. And I know, nobody's work is finished. We all have emails that we still have to respond to. And we all have phone calls we still have to make. And we all have work that has to happen in our yards, especially now that the grass has grown and the dandelions are in full bloom. And we all have this, that, and the other to do. But God gives us Sabbath as a way of freeing us from the slavery to constant, nonstop work. It's a gift, not a burden. There's a whole group of Jewish rabbis who are fond of saying that more than God's people ever kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept God's people. It's a gift. 
In other words, the Sabbath is kind of an antidote to thinking that we are God. There's a great quote that's similar on the front of your program. Don't read it right now, but read it after the service if you didn't read it before the service. It's from a book called The Rest of God by an author named Mark Buchanan. It's a whole book about Sabbath. Here's another quote from the book. He says, The worst hallucination that busyness, that our busyness conjures, is that I am God. Everything depends on me. And how will the right things happen at the right time if I'm not pushing and pulling and watching and worrying? Sabbath is the recognition that everything does not depend on me. It's a recognition that God is God. That God is in control. That God is the one making all things new. That we don't have to be working all the time because we trust that God is who he says he is. And it's just a short step to get to the next point. If you want to say this negatively, which is in a real sense, a refusal to observe Sabbath is a refusal to trust God. Now, I know it's hard because our work on earth is never finished. You're never done parenting, or at least it feels like you're never done parenting. And just when you figure out how to parent in this life stage, your kid moves on to another life stage. You've got to figure everything out all over again. And the cheat code that worked for your first kid doesn't work for your second kid. There's always a friend or a neighbor who needs your help with something. There's always another email that you can respond to. There's always that family member that you need to catch up with that you haven't talked to in months. There's always one more project around the house. Sabbath is learning the discipline of resting as though the work were finished, even when it's not finished. For one day a week, God invites us rest as if it were done because I'm in control. Or if you want to put it differently, again, we'll ask it negatively. If God himself can stop and rest, why can't we? Is our work more important or more significant or more meaningful than God's work? And we're going to explore this more in the next week, but I want to offer just a simple framework because one of the inevitable questions is, okay, how do I do this? And let me tell you, this is a process, and this is a pretty recent process for me as well. In our family, just in the past month or two, we've been exploring a much more intentional Sabbath practice as a family. And we're not perfect. But most of us, maybe most of us, think of Sabbath in almost a puritanical sense, as if to say Sabbath means you may not work, you are not allowed to do work, and if you work, God will punish you. So you you better just, I don't know, sit around and do nothing. (laughs) That's not what Sabbath means. Christian Sabbath does not mean you're not allowed to work. It means you're allowed to not work. It's a subtle difference, but it's a very important difference. Christian Sabbath is not rooted in slavery. It's rooted in freedom. 
And next week, we're actually going to explore more how not keeping Sabbath, how refusing to keep Sabbath, enslaves us to the tyranny of work. Sabbath does not mean you're not allowed to work. It means you're allowed to not work. And when we approach that with a sense of freedom and not of of being handcuffed, it can transform it and turn Sabbath into a life-giving event, something we look forward to all week long. See, we often think Sabbath starts with a no. Do not work. You may not. You cannot. Thou shalt not. And it's a, it's a very kind of finger-wagging sense in many of our minds. And then we wonder why it feels so restrictive. <laughs> like, well, no kidding. Of course it feels restrictive. But God does not intend for Sabbath or any of his commands, for that matter, to start with no. God always starts with yes. Sabbath and observing the Sabbath, intentionally keeping the Sabbath, is a yes to God. It's a yes to God's life-giving, countercultural rest. And every yes necessarily means a bunch of other no's. I know we're getting a little bit abstract here, but, but hang with me. Every yes means a, a hundred other no's. So if you say, yes, I will go to this college, it means no, I will not go to those other colleges. Yes, I will marry this person means no, I will not be romantically involved with any of those other people. Every yes necessarily involves no. And there are no's within Sabbath, things that God tells us not to do. But Sabbath does not start with no, it starts with a yes, a yes to God, a yes to the freedom of God, and a yes to the rest of God. And it will look silly and antiquated to the world that seems to be rushing by us. But remember, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Paul tells us as much at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. He says that so much of what God says is wise is utter foolishness to a world that does not follow him. We have to come to grips with that. That following God makes us look different. But we can also remember what one author, Karen Stiller, writes. Here's what she says. She says, what the world might see as a waste might actually be a wonder. What looked to everyone else like the Messiah failing was the Messiah fulfilling the most holy journey as death became life and as the tomb became emptied of its body, a body full of promise that will return everything, excuse me, that will turn everything inside out and right side up. And she finishes and says, success to us looks different than the world's idea of success. We can rest as if everything is finished because on the cross, as Jesus died, one of the last things he said was three simple words. It is finished. And we could fill up months and months and months thinking and talking and studying about what exactly was finished, but the simplest answer is that the old way was finished. The way that demands that we work our hands to the bone was finished. On the cross, the way that insists that we be productive above anything else is finished. 
On the cross, the way that requires us to be always on, always checking notifications, always available to everyone, is finished. And through the work of Christ, we are set free from slavery to work. Through Jesus' accomplishments on the cross, we are set free from the tyranny of always having to accomplish the next thing. We have been set free, Scripture teaches us. And in Sabbath, God invites us to live like it. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that you have set us free. We believe that you have set us free. But so often, it's, it's hard for that to really sink into our bones. And we find old ways and old patterns and old habits constantly surfacing again. But as we explore what it means to slow down and even to observe Sabbath as rigid as it can seem from the outside, would you use it to set us free and to give us life? You have given us life through your son, Jesus. Continue to give us life through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things. Amen.